0: Good evening. You're tuning in to a late night recording of Burley Fisher's Isolation Station with myself, your host Dan Fuller, and my bud Ant Hurley. Ant, how's it going?
1: Very well, thanks. good. I liked that. I thought you were going to say Late Junction.
0: I I, I wish I could say Late Junction. One day. One day. (laughs) One day. Um... That's That's Mecca for all producers yeah for those of you who don't know Late junction is an amazing experimental radio show put out by radio 3 and you should all listen to it because it rules
1: spectacular
0: a lot of the a lot of the tunes that get played at the shop front uh basically stolen from that show so yeah mm. definitely give it a listen yeah it's sunday evening and we have a very special episode for you. and do you want to tell us a little bit about what's coming
1: up? Yeah, so uh, on this episode we're talking to an amazing woman called Mandira Sen who runs Sri Samya, a publisher based in Calcutta, India, and they publish Dalit authors. Mandira's going to talk about Dalit people and that cast as the lowest caste in India, mm-hmm. and there was a feminist publisher and they published a lot of new women writing in yeah. India across India and yeah just an incredibly wise and awesome conversation
0: yeah I think we were a bit in awe um with yeah. <laughs> the interview definitely in the spirit of a late night jazz broadcast we're gonna fade away quietly and gently and introduce you to the world of Stree Samia books run by Mandira Sen
1: so hello and uh, good morning uh, from London we're um, currently talking to Mandira Sen of Stree Samya Publishers based in Calcutta, India. Hi, Mandira, how are you?
2: Hello, Dan and Anthony, how are you?
0: We're very well, thanks. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing lovely. The, the sun is out, so we can't complain. <laughs> How's,
1: um, how are things in Calcutta at the moment um, with the lockdown scenario for you?
2: Uh, the lockdown is... Um... I mean, on the face of it, people who are privileged are doing all right because, you know, they have nice homes to be in and and, uh, the market is open for some time. So you can buy things easily at high prices, but it's available and you can manage, but it's the poor who are really suffering and especially the daily wage earners where everything is dried up. And uh, the police seem to gun for them. I mean, they picked up Two street barbers. You know, a lot of people work on the street, right? So they just picked them up and said, "You're, you, you know, you're not meant to do this in the lockdown." But of course, they need the money, so they picked the barber up and they picked up his client, and things like that. So it is very, very rough on the poor. And you may have heard in the British newspapers, like the Guardian, of how migrant labour have walked, literally a thousand kilometres or so to get home, or more. Mm. Uh, From one state to another before they shut those borders and herd them back, and then finally realize they have to do something for them so they have food and some shelter. But it's just terrible because they announce one day that next morning there's the lockdown or something, and so how do these people manage? Because their employers just shed them, their landlords just shed them. They're out in the street, and you had you have people doing heroic things like biking i don't know over a thousand miles or something until he got home and then they're quarantined there so they kept outside <laughs> so it's rough it's it's sort of like the society is all stratified and unjust it's uh, it's just been rough on on the great majority really
1: yeah of course yeah um it's a it's a very surreal situation um so talking about um the publishers, um, the well, you you you're sort of two publishers together, Stri and Samya. Yes,
2: yes, we yes we are we are we have two imprints, and one is called 3 which means women in most of our languages, and that's because we wanted to focus on women in India, and this was an exciting time, say 1990, and social sciences had changed, and the way of writing sociology had changed, and women's studies was coming up. And a lot of the women's movements, I mean, in America and in India, had come up with new concepts, new methodologies. And we wanted to use that. And, and our, there's a partnership called Bhatkal and Sen. I'm the Sen. And the Bhatkal's were much older publishers from 1926 in Bombay. And they had a very strong base in Marathi, which is the Bombay language. And uh, they did social science. And what was interesting at that time with the British Empire on, they didn't just import wonderful social sciences from the UK, like Lasky or whatever. They had their own. So we had the pioneers here who are still red, like Kosambi and Gurie. And they did those. So they now wanted, they realized, though, that they have to, be updated, and and I met the senior Bhatkal at a conference called, I think, International Scholarly Publishers Conference on the strength of one book that I'd done. And I don't know what I said at the seminar, but he sought me out, and that's how we started to collaborate.
1: Oh, so it was um, was that the Samya side of the, the, the now yeah, publishing?
2: That. So we started with three to do um, to do uh, stuff on women. And then we found that things like caste, things like, well, problems of society, which include men, because you can't really just think of women without men. Well, you can, but it's crazy. And uh, so uh, we thought, what should we do? Do we add that on to three, or do we do something else? So we started Samya, which means equality, and mm. there we uh, we do some of our radical books and ideas on how the society is changing or not changing. And, uh, and a lot of it is Dalit literature because uh, they, as the untouchables are now called for about uh, 50, 60 years, they prefer the name Dalit which means they are ground down and they think that's a piece of pride because now they're rising. Whereas untouchables has this old, old uh, branding and they did not like The great Gandhi's term for them, which was Harijan, which means children of God, which they said was patronising, which it probably was.
1: For for our listeners here in um, the UK and around the world who aren't based in India, um, could you give us just, uh, you know, what it it means to be Dalit in Indian society and how um, you approached that with the publishing of books from Dalit writers?
2: Well, well, Dalits were sort of like slaves in many ways, and and right at the bottom of society. And uh, people uh, didn't uh, or camouflage the material basis of this great deprivation and great uh, discrimination. You know, they if they lived in the village, which they did, they lived right at the end, in a in a sort of ghetto-like thing. And because they were seen as polluting, this was the other ideological side, which was this huge, huge uh, philosophy of purity and pollution. And the higher up you are, the more pure you are. And the lower you are, the more polluted you are. And so they were parked in these kinds of ghetto-like situations where the idea was that the breeze or the wind would first fly over the upper castes, mm-hmm. and then go to them, and then it could be polluted. So from basic things like that to horrible jobs of society like, um, oh, um, skinning cows, uh, dealing with carcasses, uh, cleaning, uh, cleaning human excreta, which still goes on, because this country has not really organized its sanitation, things like that, it still continues. What did change is that there's been huge protest movements throughout history here. Mm -hmm. And it started with the great Buddha. And in fact, Buddhism was a big protest movement against these kinds of things of Hinduism, where he said, this is all an old fashioned British term, Tommy Rock, because everyone is born in the same way and there's no such (laughs) thing as untouchability. And then um, uh, protests would erupt now and then. There would be a little bit of improvement, but not very much, because, you know, the economics were against them. Then with the rise of the freedom movement and in the empire did help them because the British provided some education, provided some support for the untouchables, as they were called then, or the depressed classes, as they were called then. And the British, or uh, the missionaries, did a huge amount of work for them. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah, they gave, uh, they gave schools, schooling. And one of their early reformers was called Jyoti Rao, Jyoti Ba Fule, who wrote in English. And this is in the 1840s. And he founded schools. And he brought in uh, uh, people who were Not untouchables. He wasn't one, he was just a little bit above. And he had all this education and he opened schools for um, upper caste widows who were treated abysmally. And he was a great reformer. So you've had sort of important reforms from them, which has helped them. But the greatest reform was really just before independence when they had a leader called Dr. Ambedkar. And Dr. Ambedkar was um, agitating for their rights and was invited by the Indian National Congress party which was negotiating with the british for independence along with the muslim league which later founded pakistan that uh, the constitution of the new india at that point they needed a new chairman for the drafting committee and and uh, Pandit Nehru, who would later be the Jawaharlal Nehru, who later be the first prime minister, and Gandhi had this brilliant idea of appointing Dr. Ambedkar to do that. So Dr. Ambedkar wrote this constitution along with about 126 members of this something called a constituent assembly, which had women too. And uh, there, the constitution has put in a kind of affirmative action thing for them, which is more complex than the American one. So they have rights to say there are certain political constituency where only they can stand and be elected. So the candidate has to be one of them. Then there's a whole quota for schools. There's a whole one for, not so much schooling, but education, higher education and jobs. So finally, you've got a, a middle class, but not all of it fights for those who are still struggling. A mm. lot of them are quite happy to have, you know, climbed and are climbing. So the things are changing. But if you're right there and you're, uh, you don't have much education, you're probably illiterate, it, it's really rough. So you have both in India. You have change and no change.
1: Mm. <laughs> how, how do you go about kind of sourcing um, these writers and translators, um, the publisher, Do you, how do you find these Dalit authors?
2: I mean, for the, for, for the Dalits, the, the, the idea of Samya came when a great manuscript came our way that had been turned down by all the bigger publishers. It was seen as scandalous and horrible and obscene and, um, you know, anti anti-society, anti-religion, and nobody would touch it. And uh, it came to us through people we knew, and this was a man in Hyderabad called Kancha Ilaya. And he is not absolutely from the Dalits, but he's just a few runs above. He's from uh, the shepherd community. And uh, he, they too have a lot of discrimination. For instance, he and his brother were the first to get any kind of schooling in that family and uh, it's interesting that his mother was reluctant because she said the goddess of learning who's very famous saraswati was anti the lower castes getting education and would kill them anyway, anyway despite this struggle the boy's went off and got educated and then um, he he it was a terrible struggle and the he managed to get into a, uh, to do his masters degree Through that affirmative uh, action thing, which is called reservation, means that quota is reserved for you. And, um, And he thought, and naturally, being in that privileged university and seeing what's happening and seeing his other fellow students, he had great ideas. And so he... And then he used to read a lot. He actually learned English at university. I mean, he didn't know it very well before. Not that he knew it very well then, but he started to read. Mm. And he loved, um, is it Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian? Yeah.
3: yeah and
2: yeah. and uh, according to—and he, he liked that title. And so he wrote this book called Why I'm Not a Hindu. Mm. <laughs> you know, a shudra, which is the uh, lower caste. They're called shudras critique of uh, Hindutva, which is sort of right-wing political Hinduism, which we have right now in government, Uh, uh, culture, philosophy, and political economy. And so we said, we'll do it. And we worked with him. And that was a roaring success, Mm. because though the elites disliked it, and he got huge amounts of hate mail, including lots from the Indian diaspora abroad who are actually terribly right-wing. The constituency was huge. I mean, there are letters from, postcards from jails saying, can we buy this book or will you give it to us free because we are poor, that kind of thing. And that has gone on from 1996 to today.
3: Uh So
2: he's been writing and we've been publishing him and his latest was his memoirs, which was something like, from a shepherd boy to an intellectual, and he writes about his <laughs> observations and his life. But that book changed his life, and it made an enormous impact because um, the, there's a huge, I mean, Anthony will know this if he's come to Calcutta, there's a huge kind of looking up to the English language in India.
1: Yeah, incredible. Some of the colloquialisms in the language just... <laughs> Yes. It's amazing how they've survived that long.
2: So these English-language prestigious newspapers offered him a column. So he was writing five or six columns, and the thing about being an English-language newspaper is that it's all India, you know, uh, as opposed to, say, the language of our area. Yeah. So that made him famous, and that got us going. And after that, lots of people started writing to us, yeah, I've got this book, what do you think? Yeah. Mm. and uh, so that's how we really got started and so his was the first book under samya
0: awesome
1: and on the street side um with the um the feminist writing how do you see the landscape now for for feminism and women writing in india
2: well it's like everywhere a lot of the middle class women are less interested because actually feminism women's rights have got them places And um, I think that's very familiar in the West, too. And so all the old battles waged, well, there they are. They're into the, I mean, they've become civil servants. They've become professors. And uh, teaching at universities has become a very lucrative thing because the salaries are very, very huge now. So, and, and, and when you get a university job, that's a secure job because it's almost a permanent job. So a lot of women who had education, who perhaps had PhDs from abroad, have done very, very well, and even others. So it's really the others. It's the uh, uh, women from other income groups who are still struggling, who are still interested. And then of course, uh, it's become an industry, women's studies. So you yeah. know, as it's a scholarly uni- in industry, so we have, uh, and it's it's got uh, it's got university departments. So you, you do books for them, too. So we've done some women's studies readers, which are doing very well. And uh, they would do better. Our main problem is marketing. I mean, we are so feeble at marketing as little publishers. <laughs> I mean, and, and worse, getting the money from the bookshops and the distributors used to really make us tear our hair. And uh, then uh, around 2010, uh, or no more, 2005 or so, there was changes amongst the Bhatka's, you know, that partnership, um, where the younger Bhatka was a modern young man who had a finance MBA, has. And uh, that means, you know, uh, the balance sheet is very carefully studied, right? (laughs) And now with computers, you cannot hide anything. I mean, you you could say, well, no, actually this book didn't cost that much, but of course it did. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) and hasn't sold as much. And then when I'd say, you know, we, we, we really need some investment from you, we'd say, well, I'm making arrangements with this big scholarly publisher, Sage, and why did not you come and talk to them? So we have a partnership with Sage,
0: which oh, wow. is sort
2: of, I think they're there in UK too, right? Yeah, big. yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big, and big they family. take some of our books. Then uh, the book started to do very well. It makes sense for them to support uh, people like us who have these unusual books. And so, so far, we've done about 14 books together and uh, they seem quite pleased uh, with us. I, I did contact them saying I'd be talking to you and is it okay to assume we're continuing after the lockdown?
0: Mandira, <laughs> um, I, I wanted to return to a point you made earlier that was really me about uh, the women's movement and how uh, economic success can uh, perhaps divorce people who had previously been interested um, Mm -hmm. from the movement and how it um, kind of is ongoing and I wanted to kind of ask about in India, what the intersections might be between uh, the women's movement, uh, class or caste movement literature, and literature, and, and how these um, subalterns, uh, for want of better words, um, how, how that's expressing itself in literature and publishing?
2: Yes, the, the subalterns are expressing themselves in literature, and they've... Um, had serious um, critiques of the mainstream women's movement um, because they said this is middle class and upper class and upper caste, privileged women who, okay, once upon a time, too, were uneducated. But they've had education now for 150 years. And uh, they've never once thought of us And then um, they are able to do their fancy careers, um, whether sitting in a boardroom or at a university, because they have, um, I think you might have it in Britain amongst the wealthy, but they have these maids who come in and clean and cook and uh, support all those tasks they would have to do, Mm -hmm. but they don't Mm -hmm. have to, so they can be free in their jobs. And it's this uh, And it's the community from these people who are very disgruntled. And somehow the mainstream couldn't accommodate them. I mean, they tried. They've tried to be a little more diverse. um, And they've they've considered disability issues. They've considered people from other communities. But they couldn't really unlock this puzzle. And so around 1990, you had Dalit women forming their own women's uh, uh, groups, and there was something called the National Federation of Dalit Women, and there were other, other groups as well, and they had this very strong critique, and the two have somehow not gelled. And what's, so, what's worse for the Dalit women is that these Dalit men, who have been politically very active and uh, very successful in you know, mobilizing support and lobbying the government, also kind of put them in a secondary sort of level.
0: Mm. And
2: there was one, um, about four years ago, there was a dreadful atrocity against the Dalits. And this was in a place called Una, where um, I think some Dalit men who were seen skinning a cow, which is their legitimate occupation, and they, they, they were killed, I think, in a very painful way. Now, the women protested, too, along with the men. And at a protest meeting, the Dalit women wanted to come up to the stage and speak, and they were prevented. So mm. they have problems with the Dalit men, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they say they have three oppressions. One is the general caste oppression. Uh, and then uh, one is from the... the, gen, uh, the patriarchy of their (laughs) Dalit men and uh, so all this is very much in the air and uh, that's what we are we are doing some publishing on that we've got a book coming out called Dalit feminism and so it's it's an exciting time for them meanwhile thanks to that uh, education program I was telling you about and the quotas at university and jobs a lot of women have been writing because they've had the education and uh, their short stories, their poetry. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And they're getting a lot of attention, which uh, some Dalit men seem to dislike. And we, we have published a man called um, uh, Limbali, Sharan Kumar Limbali, who is quite a famous Marathi Dalit writer. Mm-hmm. And we've also published a Marathi Dalit woman called Urmila Pawar. And uh, she writes about being from you know, three generations of Dalit women, two of which were totally illiterate. And then here she is. She goes to school. She mm-hmm. goes to university. She marries someone who's angry that she wants to do an MA, but she does. Mm-hmm. And then she's a writer. And mm-hmm. her Books are prescribed in Bombay University. I mean, her stories and her poems. And in her her memoirs that we did, and actually we sell rights, so it went to Columbia University Press. So there's a wider audience for it. We translated it from Marathi to English. Anyway, there she talks about, you know, the domestic violence and uh, non-cooperation of her husband. So... You know, Dalit women have a tough time with everything, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, that's how we get our books. And uh, once you you, uh, do a fine book, you get uh, people approaching you. We are very selective because that's our USP. We have to have high quality because, uh, you know, how do you stand out from other people? You've got got to preserve that. So it's tough.
0: It's a very delicate thing, especially as a small press. um uh, We run a small press out of the shop as well. Myself and Anthony are not so involved in that, but I'm keenly aware of when you are putting out work that's uh, culturally important. Uh, you're kind of walking a tightrope once, as soon yeah. as you get any kind of interest. Um, you
2: are absolutely and you have to be so diplomatic and tactful because um, the Dalit writer sees you for what you are you know all that privilege (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah so Mandu I had another question um, because there'll be a lot of listeners here who uh, have never visited India or have maybe very briefly as a tourist um if you could just, if we could take a step back and just talk about what the reading culture is like, because here in England, um, the narrative is that books are on decline and that nobody is reading anymore, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's that's the narrative. Um, and yeah, I, I just kind of was interested in who's reading in India at the moment, how they're reading, how they're getting all these, this stuff and um, uh, what the culture is like in a, in a more general sense, I suppose.
2: I I think there was never much reading in India mm-hmm. because once um, the British instituted these universities and there was a lot of um, excitement uh, among the elite to learn English, which in our area of Bengal people have been learning since, say, the uh, 1750s. Mm. Although, although, if you've heard of this man, Robert Clive, he actually won the crucial battle yeah. um, that gave uh, Britain, Bengal, and the rest of India eventually, which was in 1757. But mm. you see, the locals had worked out that uh, things are changing. Uh, may, the moguls are on their way out and the British are coming, and we're going to have to learn English. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be opportunities for us as translators. So actually, that's another thing. Three does a lot of translations. Uh, And uh, it was the whole thing, the universities were meant. I think the British wanted employees at the lower level of their um, huge... Administration, which was stopped by English people from England who did this nasty exam and eventually got in. But uh, so it was skills oriented Mm -hmm. and it has remained skill oriented. And apart from people who are seen as eccentric, who want to do humanities Mm -hmm. and social sciences Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, STM and IT. So this is where the money is. So you're seen as a little odd. If you if you really read, and mm-hmm. there are plenty of middle class and rich homes which don't have books, mm-hmm. and I have a pair of very, uh, very nice cousins who do high high power jobs, or did I don't know about the lockdown etc., who said books carry a lot of dust, you know, um, <laughs> wow. they've been thwarted, they've been thwarted by their son, who is a reader, so. <laughs> hard to find, I think, in a funny way, these online groups, these chat shows, these getting together have actually increased reading. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, And so maybe the future is going to be different, where people will read more, but in the, say, about 15 years ago, a very serious uh, publisher, uh, a dear friend who died early, he used to run SAGE here before. it lost its independence and got bought up by the main sage, you know, the international sage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he um, would say that a very good book, which should should be printed in more than 2,000 copies, he wouldn't dare do it because you, that seemed to be the readership. I'm not sure if it's changed that much. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of English language publishing of all kinds of uh, quality. Especially this uh, genre called, in, uh, you know, Indian writing in English, and they win Booker prizes and things like mm-hmm. Arundhati Roy, have yeah, I mean, you know, lot of yeah. small things. Yeah, that's so. You have all that people around, and and in the urban centers there are people who read in English quite a lot. Uh, in the old days, in the urban centers and. Uh, people also read in their own languages. I think some people think that's declining, but I don't think so. And I think the readership is going to come from there, that eventually when when we get over our hang-up with the elite, uh, you see the new uh, reader or the new student is going to come from those struggling classes Mm. who would never dream of speaking in English at home. I mean, we do sometimes here, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but not always and um, they are going to read in their languages so i think that's where the readership is
0: awesome that's a lovely and i
2: think that's going to be huge and i it's it's like a shibboleth with the english language publishers you know and at a conference recently when people were asking your question and who are the new readers and I, I said, this is where they're going to come from. They, they nearly shouted me down.
3: Mm. saying,
2: What's your basis of saying this? What's the literacy rate? What is this? What is that? I said, I agree with you. I agree mm. with you that the literacy rate hasn't risen enough. But it is rising. And then they want to read. Mm. So what are they going to read? They're not going to read Arunthiti uh, Roy. Mm. <laughs> they're going to read something that uh, uh, you know, appeals to them. It's, it's like that a humongous cinema thing we have in Bollywood, uh, which is really of terrible quality, but people love it. But yeah. that's, that's reaching out to this very kind of person and the dreams it sells. that, yes, you yeah. come to the city, you work hard, you meet this wonderful girl, and uh, then you get this wonderful life. And I think that is what is happening in India, that this is this is the social change, this is the aspiration, and along with it will come the reading. I mean... There's someone who, um, as I told you, we are privileged. Uh, my uh, sister's family, the, the woman who comes in to cook in the morning. Now, she can't read or write, nor does she want to learn. Because she's found out that you can get recipes through YouTube. So she just ah. switches that on. And the other day she was making some uh, Mexican thing. Because <laughs> it's, uh, you know it's there on YouTube and she follows it. Now, her daughter has got to college, and rather a good college. And she told her mother she didn't want to live in the slum with them. It would be difficult for her in the college. So she's got some kind of uh, a lodging system, which is called paying guest in India, Mm -hmm. in a flat with two, three other friends in this woman's house. And she lives there and goes to college. And she's also modeling on the side, because she's rather gorgeous to look at. I I like to think that's the new India, you know, not this tired old elite story.
1: (laughs) That that sort of uh, role of technology can really help bring people in from the margins to urban centers when they can sort of immerse themselves.
2: It does. And of course, it's killing work for her parents who, um, you know, work all the time at various jobs and... Uh, Save money for their three children, but uh, and schooling is important In exam in India the exam system is a nightmare. I mean test for this test for that and uh, They see to it that those children of theirs do all this so I'm hoping there's hope there and and that that will increase the democracy in India and not lessen it at the moment the new aspiration people were the ones who voted the present government in. Not just yeah. them, but they did vote for him.
0: Yeah.
2: On the other hand, Boris got voted in too, right? <laughs>
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's just, uh, when you talk about the exam, exam system, I, I remember when I was um, on a train near Calcutta meeting a guy who had, I think, traveled. Days across India to go and take a national rail examination or something. Um, yeah,
2: and yes. it just seems
1: like this huge, huge journey.
2: It's it's a nightmare. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the man who heads—is uh, it Google and Microsoft have two Indians? Uh, or yeah. Is he on top? Is he with Alphabet? I think he's called Alphabet. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, there's a man called Nadella, and there's a man called Pichai, mm. and they went through this system. Where, um, in fact, the exams have had to be postponed in the lockdown. But around July, there's this hideous nightmare. It's, it, the nearest you can think of is Japan, or is it Korea or China, where you have to sit this exam, and maybe um, you know millions sit it, and they take in something disgusting like seven, eight thousand.
3: Wow.
2: If you have a minute, I'd love to tell you about our rickshawala and the tank magazine. Oh yeah, please. Well, he he was an absolute destitute.
1: Is this Manjaram or That's
2: him. Yes. Yeah. Absolute destitute. They came over at uh, uh, later than the nineteen forty-seven partition between India and Pakistan. It came later, and it was in total disarray. Anyway, not that they had much on that side. But on this side, it was dire. And then there were some camps they had access to, which was also dire. Then hunger, sister the dying of starvation, that kind of life. No education at all. Didn't know how to read and write. Comes back to Calcutta during the Naxalite period. You're, you're, I don't know if you had references to that. This was the 1967 um, to 70 period. And he gets caught up in gang warfare. And some of this is political. And eventually, he ends up in prison. And he's, he's sort of crying, sitting there and crying. He's about 23. And he, he has no idea how long he's going to be in. He had killed people. And uh, the, uh, there was a man next to him saying, what's the point of crying? Look at the thing that's hanging around your neck, some kind of uh, label. And that'll, if you read that out to me, I'll be able to tell you what your chances are, how many years you'll be in here. And he said, I don't know how to read. And the man was shocked and actually taught him. So that's when he learned to read and write in jail. So then he, when he comes out of jail, he has to ply the rickshaw because he needs a job. Mm-hmm. And it's a romantic story because one of the passengers, I don't know if you've heard her name, Mahashweta Devi, And she was very proactive with the Dalits. Yeah, well, she was his passenger and he saw her books and he said, can I ask you the meaning of this word? And and it was a very unusual Bengali word. So she was startled and she said, how do you know this? And he said, I read. And she said, oh, and so he lifts the seat and then uh, uh, there are books there. And one of them is hers.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. That's so
2: cool. And he asked her to write in her journal, Bortika, and that's how he got started, and there's no ending. And wow. he won that uh, literary prize. He won the first time the Hindu newspaper of Madras did this literary prize at their festival, the nonfiction. He won it.
3: Wow.
2: We translated it, and it was a brilliant feat of translation by this woman. But we lost him, Dan and uh, Anthony, because Amazon swooped on him.
3: Oh, no.
1: no. And
2: he's now an Amazon author. Oh, no. So that was that. But we still have the second volume to do.
1: Uh, I mean, we're, we'll put a link to this amazing documentary I watched with him, um, where he talks about his um, his outlook on literature and all of the labels that you can put on things and how he kind of navigates away from even labelling himself a Dalit writer because it can affect the orientation of people um, approaching his work and um, yeah, he just seems like an incredible figure really. Yes. And the title of that first book is called Interrogating My Chandle Life but um, unfortunately now only available through Amazon so (laughs) we might have to wait for volume two.
0: I loved his blistering attack upon the Communist Party as well. I I I I thought that uh, it was a, a faux communists are a bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, so uh, that that little uh nugget really really made my morning. <laughs> we'll send you an email after the episode goes out, and maybe we can give you some information, and maybe see if we can get. Uh, some of your books over on our shelves in London. Um, So let's, um, yeah, hopefully see this as the start of a, a long and fruitful friendship. Definitely.
2: It was very nice talking to you. Thank you for making this effort. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. Take care. Bye now.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mandira. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much to Mandela for joining us. And it's just an absolute privilege to get like a sneak peek into what incredible people are doing elsewhere in the world.
1: Yeah, definitely felt like we'd been let into another kind of really rich history culture there and yeah, got a feeling of what it's like to be working in our in our world, but on the other side of the world. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, so thank you again to Mandira. In the spirit, I, I'm I'm, I'm going to return to this idea of jazz radio because I'm just loving it. Um, I'm going to end not with some book recommendations, but with some late night or early morning or just chilled tune recommendations. Mr Hurley, does anything come to mind?
1: Um, what would I listen to right now? You sent me that beautiful... Sigaros uh, EP from 2004.
0: The other oh, way. yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no you should all listen to it. It's called Ba Ba Tiki Di Do, and it's like a really early Sigaros EP. It's purely instrumental, it goes from like heavy, almost industrial sounds to uh, just light, beautiful, almost angelic melodies. It's like an absolute ride. And whether you're kind of going out for a stroll at dawn or getting into bed at night, it's a, it's a wonderful listen. So that'll be the first uh, recommendation of tunes coming from me and Ant. We are kicking up something special and musical, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to tell you who's coming up next either. I'm going to leave you on the edge of your seats. I like to have a little bit of suspense in the podcast. Otherwise, it just feels like you're coldly compiling lists. so on that note i'm gonna thank mandira sen from street samya books one more time for joining us and for producing the conversation while i was sitting on my ass reading books (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna thank you all for listening tune in again peace Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team of Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller and Anthony Hurley, joined by Mandira Sen. This show was co-produced by Dan Fuller and Anthony Hurley, with music by Ant as well, aka Dear Brother. Peace out everybody, it's not sounding today, and I don't really know what else to remark on, so signing off.